Welcome to our Clothed with the Sun daily podcast, our daily reading of the gospel and a brief meditation. I am James Thomas. Today is Saturday, April 29th, 2023, the feast of Doctor of the Church, first female Doctor of the Church, St. Catherine of Siena, and Saturday of the third week of Easter. Today's gospel reading is the conclusion of chapter six of the gospel according to St. John. Many of the disciples of Jesus who were listening said, This saying is hard. Who can accept it? Since Jesus knew that his disciples were murmuring about this, he said to them, Does this shock you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life while the flesh is of no avail. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning the ones who would not believe and the one who would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you, that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer walked with him. Jesus then said to the twelve, Do you also want to leave? Simon Peter answered him, Master, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. So as I was saying, this concludes the Bread of Life discourse, the chapter 6 of the Gospel according to St. John. And this particular passage at the end of the chapter is very intense. Many people are leaving Jesus and Jesus lets them go. They say, this saying is hard. I just can't help but think if this was just a metaphor, if this was just symbolism. First of all, it wouldn't be that hard of a saying. And secondly, Jesus wouldn't let them all go because people simply can't accept a parable as opposed to a genuine message. The fact that Jesus says, I am the bread of life and you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, this is not an image. It's not merely a symbol. It's a reality. It's why he says, amen, amen, I say to you. So this is the hot button issue, and it remains the hot button issue throughout the history of Christianity. For those who accept Jesus in the Eucharist, uh, there's an endless amount of grace that they're receiving especially in Mass and in adoration. For those that don't accept it, well, this is really at the heart of Protestantism. So many denominations that have been created, so many people that have broken off. I mean, there's other reasons for breaking off into Protestantism, but this really is the main issue. If people were to say, well, I don't believe in devotion to Mary, like, okay, that's Protestantism, but that's not as crucial of an issue. People say, well, I don't like statues. I don't like Jesus being on the crucifix. Uh, So many other differences that we have. I mean, really, the similarities are so many more, which is what we should focus on. We should focus on how we can pray together, how we can bond together. But I'm just making a point here for the sake of intellectual knowledge, the most important thing that we all disagree on is the Eucharist. And it goes back to John chapter six. 
Peter is the one who shows his faith so much so that this is a crucial moment among a few others where Jesus is going to affirm him for what he's saying in his boldness and make him the head of the church, the keeper of the keys. When Peter says, Master, to whom shall we go? There is no one else. You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, if Jesus says it, it's true. There is no one else to go to. No one else has raised the dead. No one else has performed so many miracles at will, curing the blind, uh, curing the sick, expelling demons, so many things that Jesus has done, walking on water, etc., which just happened earlier in this chapter. So yes, Jesus is giving them a teaching that's very hard to accept, not simply a parable or a metaphor. And it is a point of division. So this is intense and this is important and it should drive home for us the importance of the Eucharist. Jesus is willing to let people go over this because this is an an essential teaching of the faith. When we look at all the different heresies and then all the different doctrines and dogmas that have been clarified because of these heresies, I mean, they have to do with the identity of Jesus. Okay, that's an area where we all agree. They sometimes have to do with Mary, but usually that's in connection with who Jesus is. Uh, There's a few others here and there, but the main ones have to do with Jesus, and yet there are some of the major heresies of the church have to do with the Eucharist. And doctrines were clarified because of these heresies. In other words, these are central teachings. These are teachings that needed to be clarified These are teachings that are more just at the core of who we believe. It's true, like there have been many debates over the centuries about moral issues, and we still have these debates, but they're not as central. There are debates about the other sacraments, but they are not as central. This is the heart of our church, the source and summit of our faith, the Eucharist, and Jesus doesn't mince words. Either we believe it or we don't. And if we believe it, not only are we part of the church, but we're able to, uh, you know, the Eucharist makes us the church. We become the body of Christ because we receive the body of Christ. And St. Paul is going to spell this out for us later. This is a literal reading of Scripture, which, you know, a lot of times... I can recall times, especially when I was in theological training, when I was in school, where they would call us fundamentalists for reading the Bible literally. And yet, I think Catholics read the Bible more literally than anybody. Really. It's just that we balance out the passages. It's true. We don't isolate passages. We read all the passages in light of the other passages. So, you know, if one passage, for example, talks about faith and another passage talks about works, well, we read them all and then we, we reflect on them and we try to figure out, okay, what does this mean exactly? Where exactly is our faith? And, you know, Catholics and Protestants have signed joint declarations about that, that yes, only faith can save you. Grace can save you. Works do not save you, yet the works are still important because the Bible talks about them. And the word there is cooperation. We cooperate with grace, meaning we still have choices to make. We still have actions to carry out. 
So when it comes to Jesus saying, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, yes, we say that's literal. And largely because Jesus is making it clear, amen, amen, I say to you, this is really important. And if you're going to leave over this, I'm going to let you go because this isn't this isn't just a symbol. Anyway, I'm not going to just keep repeating myself here. Today is the feast of St. Catherine of Siena. And St. Catherine of Siena, I mentioned her before as a great saint, female doctor of the church, who was deeply in love with Jesus, in particular in the Eucharist. And she was a woman of many great miracles. And some of these miracles had to do with the Eucharist. I mean, one very common one was that when she would receive communion, she would just put her head down and go deep into prayer and she would go into an ecstasy where they would do things to her because the other women in the church were jealous of her and they would stick her with pins. And when she was deep in prayer after communion and there's nothing they could do to shake her out of her prayer, her depth of prayer that she experienced after receiving communion. Uh, St. Catherine, you know, was known to sometimes heal the sick, sometimes even raise the dead when she was in nursing and was praying over people that were sick and dying. There's a story that one time she got very sick and she started to pass into heaven, essentially, and people prayed over her and brought her back and she was very upset with them for doing that. Uh, St. Catherine was a courageous woman. St. Catherine you know, during the time of the Avignon papacy, uh, she went to speak to the Pope to tell him to come back to Rome. She gave advice to other priests. She gave advice to local governors, local political leaders, and they had so much respect for her because she was such a courageous woman, did so many great things, really helped the church in so many ways. And to read her dialogues, you get a, a very strong sense of her prayer life and her love for Jesus in particular in the Eucharist. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit, just completing this little section about the Mass and the Eucharist, that there were numerous Eucharistic miracles connected with St. Catherine of Siena. For example, um, she, by I'm just going to read a couple of these things, a couple of quotes that I have here about St. Catherine. For a time in her life, she was nourished by the Eucharist alone. Yet still she was able to carry out her many works of service and counsel with surprising energy. Her, just a little section here, her, her confessor had told her to stop such severe fasting. But after time, he realized that Catherine literally could not eat anything else at one point in her life. That any food given to her caused her much pain and caused her to regurgitate. Father Raymond of Capua, who wrote her biography, her official biography, who was actually her spiritual director, but he was also directed by her in a lot of ways. Um, he was quoted as saying, when she was obliged to take food, she was so incommoded <laughs> that it would not remain in the stomach, and it would be quite impossible to describe her grievous pains on such occasion. So she would go and she would uh, take the Eucharist and it sustained her and she was not able to put other foods down. And this lasted for a very long time in her life. It says, for the seven year period prior to her death, St. Catherine took no food other than the Eucharist. Her fasting did not affect her energy, however. She had a very active life during those seven years. Most of her great accomplishments occurred during that period. 
and her death had nothing to do with malnutrition. Other Eucharistic miracles. One day, a priest who did not believe in Catherine's visions and her special relationship with the Eucharist gave her an unconsecrated host under the guise of it being Holy Communion. She immediately knew when she received it that it was not the body and blood of Christ. Many priests reported witnessing various times when the Eucharist moved to her on its own, even flying across the church. Her friends witnessed that whenever she received communion, she would go into an ecstasy of deep union with God and sometimes would even levitate above the ground. There's an ongoing Eucharistic miracle in Siena, where St. Catherine was from. Uh, There was a collection of about 350 consecrated hosts, and they were found to be incorrupt, and they're still incorrupt from 1730 until today. Over almost 300 years, these hosts are present in the tabernacle. They've shown no signs of decay. They've been scientifically tested. Uh, Many Eucharistic miracles, of course, have happened throughout history, but this is one in particular that happened in Siena. So anyway, St. Catherine had a great love for the Eucharist, and as I was talking about before, she, um, she's one of the people that teaches us how to, uh, how to pray, how to, how to pray the Mass, how to receive the Eucharist, due to her great love for Almighty God. There is a book that I love to preach from called Eucharistic Miracles. Uh, Joan Carol Cruz, I believe, is the author. And as I maybe give more talks on this, I'll read some of the stories from that book. But so many great stories. I mean, I'm just calling a couple to mind. And and these are all famous stories. They're recorded. You can actually go to these shrines. You can see the miracle with your own eyes. Someone had stolen. There's a a number of different miracle stories where someone had stolen a host from the church. And then they put it somewhere. And then the host kind of reacted to how it was being treated. Jesus, how he was being treated. Like somebody made a little wax reliquary for a host and it actually started to grow and it bursted out of the uh, reliquary. In another case, a church burnt down uh, that was having adoration. And the, um, I think what happened was that the, the monstrance rose up and flew into the air um, while everything else burned, including the altar. And the monstrance remained in the air. After they put the fire out, there was this burnout church just with the monstrance floating in the air. And somebody had the sense to say, well, let's build a new altar. And they did. They put it right there where the old altar was. And then the monstrance came back down and rested on the altar. Um, And there's just so many stories of Eucharistic miracles where, you know, we believe the bread becomes his body, but still looks and tastes like bread. But there have been times when the bread changed in its appearance to human flesh. And every time it happens, they test it and they say scientifically, it's the flesh from a man. It's actually heart tissue. It's actually living, which seems impossible. It's not eating or going to the bathroom or anything like that, but they say they're living cells and they're cells of a heart. And it's a man's heart, a man who was under great duress. So I like to say about the Eucharist that the Eucharist literally is the heart of Jesus. But even more so than that, the Eucharist is the broken heart of Jesus. When your heart is broken, you want your loved ones to console you. You want a hug. You want people to hold your hand or hold you or whatever to be there for you, talk to you, listen to you. 
Jesus' heart is broken, at least it was broken, on the cross and at the time of his passion because of our sins, because of the neglect and abandonment that he faced, because of all of his horrible pains, because of his death on the cross. And the Eucharist is one way that he shares his heart with us so that we can benefit from it, because that was the reason he allowed it to be broken, but also so that we can console his heart. He desperately needs to be consoled today. Remember, he became one of us. So he has feelings in his humanity. There are feelings there, just like the rest of us, which is why he suffered so much agony on the cross. His cross applies to all of time, so we can still console him on the cross. We can still be there. At every Mass, we have the opportunity to kneel next to the Blessed Mother at the foot of the cross and support Jesus with our love and with our prayers. Jesus was devastated on so many levels because of our sins, because of what he had to go through. And so we can console him with our presence. We can console him with our love by listening, by receiving him properly. When we consider all the times, not just that people neglect him in the Eucharist, but people receiving on the hand and then losing the particles. And these particles go all over the floor now and people step on them as they walk away. All the times, uh, you know, Jesus's name is taken in vain. I was reading something about this recently. When you hear somebody say GD or JC or whatever, using God's name in vain, we, we need to make reparation for that all the time. We should say, praise be Jesus Christ. We should at least say, God, I'm sorry that they took your name in vain. Lord, we worship you. We adore you. We love you. We praise your name. We need to constantly be making acts of reparation to Jesus because his heart was pained by, and it, and it continues to be pained as he hangs there upon the cross. He's suffering on that cross 2,000 years ago. It's hard to talk about because it, it transcends time, what Jesus did on the cross, but he literally felt the pain of every blasphemy against his name, every sacrilege against his body while particles are being spilled out all over the floor because people aren't attentive as they're receiving communion on the hand. Um, and so many other things, so many people that know Jesus, that should know him, that were raised in the faith and that neglect him and ignore him. We have the opportunity, as St. Catherine did, to console Jesus by being there with him, by being at the altar, by receiving him in communion, by loving him with all our hearts and constantly worshiping him and leading others to worship him as well. We're all God's children, and so he longs to gather us together, and it gives him great joy when we do this, and it gives him great pain and sorrow when we forget who we are and we neglect him. We hope and we pray for every human being to return to Jesus, to return to the Eucharist, to return to the God that made them so that our lives have meaning and so God's work in us is not in vain. So anyway, that concludes our meditations. I mean, once again, there's so much we can say about the Eucharist, and I will be continuing to say these things. Uh, like I said, there's so many more Eucharistic miracles to even talk about. But remember, Jesus gives us these miracles to remind us, I'm here, I'm here, I'm waiting for you, I love you, and I long for you to be with me, spend time with me, receive me with a heart that's free from mortal sin. <coughs> And uh, he desires all of us to be saved. 
So I hope everybody has a great day, and I hope your faith always increases, especially your love for Jesus in the Eucharist, that you might receive his love. God bless you all.